Good morning, Terranova. Welcome. Good to have you with us this morning. Good to be together. It's good to have uh, those of you who are only able to tune in from at home this morning, too, and we're glad that you're at least able to commune with us that way. Um, and today we're going to be actually closing um, our series in the book of Hebrews, uh, which we've been in for the better part, well, more than a year now. We started last uh, January, finishing up here at the end of January 2024. Before we get into the closing thoughts of the author of Hebrews and what God wants to say to us this morning through that, um, we want to spend a moment here just praying for um, another church that we're in partnership with, a like-minded church in the capital region here. This is something that we did a fair bit throughout uh, 2023, and then for various reasons in the fall, we kind of took a break from that. But we want to try to do it once a month, where we're lifting up another church um, that we're in partnership with. Most of them are kind of local or regional. It's just a way to to remind ourselves we're not alone in this journey. There are other uh, godly men and women, churches, brothers and sisters in Christ, all around Saratoga County, all around New York State and beyond, who are, at this very time, gathering to worship, seek the Lord, grow in Him, do His will. And so this morning I want to spend some time praying for Engage Albany, uh, which is a five-year-old-ish church plant down in the city of Albany. Some of you know uh, Pastor Sean Nolan, whether that be from, maybe you're an OG from the Terranova and Troy days, um, and in which both Sean and I were pastoral interns, uh, together back then. Uh, maybe you know uh, him from ACA, Augustine, uh, the school where he was a teacher for a couple of years. Uh, but Sean is a good friend and a good pastor. And um, I got together with Sean about a month ago, and he uh, to, uh, let me uh, showed me around their new facility. They actually got a new facility a uh, year, year and a half ago that's kind of currently under renovation, um, uh, a space that they're renting and kind of like a complex with some other businesses. And uh, I want to share with you this, this brief story. It's more just to kind of share an encouraging principle of the Christian walk with Jesus. And that is, uh, he showed me the, the facility and then, I mean, he's right downtown, like in the city of Albany. So we walked a block away to a restaurant to have some lunch together. And as we were walking, he was, he was, he was reminding him of um, a friend who, I don't know if this friend knows Christ or not. He wasn't a part of Engage Albany. He was But he had reached out to Sean recently. Sean had had a long relationship with him, and he was struggling. This friend was struggling in his faith. He was also part of a band, and the band was playing at a venue just down the street from where we were. And this was all before, you know, uh, Engage Albany moved into this new facility. And so Sean went just to support this friend, to continue this relationship going, to encourage him in his in his pursuit and seeking of Jesus. And on his way out from that venue, he walked past this kind of cross street and saw this sign of uh, for rent, the space. And they had been praying diligently about a space that they could gather in for worship because they'd outgrown the previous one. And so that ended up turning out to be the space that they're gathering in right now. And, and the point of that, that, what struck me anyway, is they had this great need. They'd been lifting it before the Lord. But it was as Sean was continuing to be about the work of God and on mission that he um, provided his provision, that he made his, that he answered that prayer. And how, how profoundly does that speak to your and my life that so oftentimes we can get fixated on what it is we feel we so desperately need from the Lord and it can almost like cause a state of spiritual paralysis and doing anything else. But it was actually in the act of being on mission that God also provided for uh, Engage Albany's needs. 
And so this morning, I just want to take a moment to invite you to pray with me for their church, for Pastor Sean. Uh, the two things that he named in particular were just adjusting in, into this new facility because there's still a lot of uh, changes and renovations that they're doing to make it work for their blossoming community, lots of kids, very diverse congregation. Um, and then also for their uh, second elder, who I believe was just installed, and some of you know Dave Brown, also from Terra Nova Troy days. Things came full circle. He's now uh, being ordained as a pastor at Engage Albany, so he's going to serve in kind of an executive pastor type role down there. So would you just join me in praying for them? As they, I'm sure they're gathering right now to worship this morning, and we'll ask God's blessing on them. Father, we thank you that on so many levels we are not alone. First and foremost, that you are with us, and as we've already even seen in Hebrews, you promise to your people that you will never leave or forsake us. But part of the way in which you remind us of, your, of the ever-present reality of you being with us is through our brothers and sisters in Christ um, all around us gathering this morning in other churches. And we lift up before you uh, Pastor Sean, his family, and Engage Albany. We pray your blessing upon them. Lord, we know that church plants are easy targets for the enemy. There's so much busyness and adjustment um, beyond even just the work of ministry and mission. And so I pray, Father, for your continued provision for them, especially when it comes to their facility needs, that you would iron those things out, powerfully provide there. I pray for Dave as he steps into this uh, co-laboring ro uh, role as a pastor alongside of Sean, that you would bless him and his family and protect them. And we pray, Father, that you would work through them to make uh, more and better disciples, even as you've called us to this morning at Terra Nova. And we ask all these things in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. Open with me to Hebrews chapter 13, the last six verses, verses 20 to 25, uh, either in your own Bible or one of the blue ESV hardback Bibles in the pews and rack in front of you. You can find uh, Hebrews 13 on page 1198, and it also should be on the screen behind me as well. And when you are ready, if you are able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 20, through the end. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you soon, or I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Father, as we close out this series in the book of Hebrews, your word to us. This morning, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful, amazing things in your word that would lead us to humility and awe and dependence upon you and a greater and deeper worship of you and love for you in light of your great love for us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Our outline for today is pretty simple, really just straightforward explanation of what we're witnessing in these final six verses, and that is first a benediction in verses 20 to 21, and then a final instruction that I think there's more to than might first meet the eye in, verses, in verse 22. We'll unpack that at length. A greeting from other Christians around that part of the world at the time. And then in verse 25, a brief but profound gospel reminder. So first, a benediction. Uh, you may remember, if you've been with us long enough, um, that the first 12 chapters of Hebrews was in a different format than we've experienced over the last several weeks. Uh, whereas really, uh, most scholars, the consensus is it was a sermon written down by whoever this author was. Uh, we don't know for sure. There's, we talked early on, speculation as to who it might have been. But it was written as a sermon. It starts off as a sermon. There's no greetings, none of the formality of a letter at the start. It was meant to be read uh, by the Christians in Rome to each other as a sermon from this one who wrote the letter, but the last chapter, chapter 13, has been much more of a letter format. It's been this addendum, if you will, of all these things, these tags at the end of the letter that the author wanted to make sure he communicated uh, to these Christians, most likely in Rome. And so one of the formal uh, clues, giveaways uh, to a letter format um, that we see in this last chapter is a benediction. That's pretty common at the end of the New Testament letters. Um, Benedictions are things that Again, if you call Terra Home, been here long enough, you probably are pretty familiar with. Not necessarily that we always name it that at the end of the service, but whenever we send you out um, with some sort of a summation of the truth of God's Word or a scripture, that it, we're, we're essentially praying a benediction over you. And that's what a benediction is. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of prayer or blessing spoken over a group of people that you love as you send them out with God's blessing into the world. It doesn't necessarily have to only be in the context of a Sunday morning. It may be something that you do very personally as a family um, over someone at at their birthday party, or maybe if you practice Sabbath, a day of rest, you spend some time praying blessing over each other. Um, So it could be an intimate context, small intimate context, or it could be like you have experienced it here on a Sunday morning at the end of our services. One thing I'll say that's more anecdotal and observational about benedictions, at least in my experience, why I love them, is because they they almost always just tend to serve to raise your heart and your mind above the fray of all the things that can cause us worry and distraction um, to the most lofty and transcendent truths we need to be reminded of. Um, And so a common benediction that you'll hear us give, one that I love to, to pray over you guys as you go, is the Aaronic uh, benediction, uh, the benediction that God gave Aaron, brother to Moses in the Old Testament, to pray over the people of Israel, where he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And as I was going back and just looking at that in number six this week, I, I noted that the verse after, in verse 26, says this. This is still God kind of giving the instruction. He says, So shall Aaron put my name upon the people of Israel when he does this benediction, and I will bless them. So, at least in this context, God is saying there's two purposes for these benedictions as they're prayed. One of them is identifying whose you are. You are God. Right? Put my name upon the people of Israel. And then secondly, it's true blessing. That in us receiving a benediction, God is wanting to work through that to truly bless us. It's not just 
a passing thought. It's not just flippant words. It's God wanting his name to be honored, you to be identified as his, and to bless you. And so one of the things that practically I want to encourage you with, if you've not already done this, it's not something I did until maybe the last few years, um, is actually receive that benediction and blessing at the end of the service as a gift. And to do so even with a posture of open hands as if you're receiving a gift. Um, There's something about embodying our actions of worship that I think God has given us bodies and a physical reality to help us receive the things that are spiritual. And if that feels weird to you, I would challenge you to consider where do you already do this, right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, when you pray, you probably bow your heads, you probably fold your hands, perhaps. Why? Because it's a visceral reminder of the fact that you are uh, paying deference to this God. You are revering Him. You are humbling yourself before Him. You are in a posture of dependence upon Him. That's what bowing your head in reverence, folding your hands, is. it just reinforces the reality of who our God is and what we're doing. So, when you receive a benediction, consider opening your hands to receive these things as true for you. They're already true for you if you are in Christ here this morning and have been walking with Him, but how easy is it to leave behind or forget the things that are already true for us? So, receive them again, afresh and anew. You can do that when we pray benedictions over you at the end of the service. But for this benediction to the Hebrews, I want to unpack it briefly because there's some really powerful truths and realities that we'll just kind of go through pretty quickly, but it's at least worth noting. I'll read it so it's fresh in your mind as we talk about these three different components we see in this benediction. The author says this in verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So three, three different things I want to say about that we see here. One is proclamational, a declaration of who God is. One's very practical, talking about what God does. And then the third is directional, like why? Why does God do any of what he does? So first, proclamational, who God is, we see at the very least, and there's so much more here, he's a God of peace. But please note that that peace did not come at no cost to himself. God, in a sense, gave up his own peace, the shedding of the blood of Jesus here, in order for us to have peace, to have that peace that is innate to who he is. He's also a God of power, um, and that he brings life, to dead places in our life and ultimately will bring us back to life even as he did Christ in the resurrection for those of us who are in Christ. So that's a little bit about who he's proclaiming God to be as a reminder to these Christians at the very end of this letter. And then practically he talks about what God does, which is a bit of a mystery, a theological mystery as well. He says he equips us and he works in us to do that which pleases him. I don't know if you're familiar with that tension in Scripture between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, but here it is, we see it again. It's probably most famously seen in Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13, uh, where we read the Apostle Paul say to those believers there, work out your salvation with fear and trembling responsibility. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, sovereignty of God at work in you to do that which pleases him. And 
how do we reconcile those and what do we do in light of that? We worship at the end of the day because there's a mysterious tension we can't fully understand about how our sovereign God works in this world to bring about that which pleases him, but also does that through us as responsible agents. And so then there's one final component, and that's directional, uh, the question of, well, why does God do any of this? And the simple answer is for his glory. And a simple definition that I like for, and, and, and believe is biblical for God's glory, is the internal reality and external manifestation of the greatness of God. The internal reality. God is already glorious whether you see that or not. But he's gracious enough to reveal that externally through everything from his creation to the beauty and glory when you understand it of what he did in his son Jesus Christ on the cross and then raising him again from the dead. So everything that God does ultimately is for his glory. That can be a stumbling block. Not just for those who are not a part of the church, people who don't yet follow Christ. It can be a stumbling block for Christians too. Because anyone else who does everything that they do for their own glory and honor, we would say is a self-centered egomaniac. But it's not the case with God. Why? Well, let me put this before you for a moment. Um, What do you in your life, or where have you found something to be greatly awe-inspiring? Jaw-droppingly awe-inspiring. Maybe it's a vista that you've witnessed on a mountaintop. Maybe it's a beautifully composed piece of music that you've listened to that just raises up something uh, of, of worship in you or close to worship in you. Maybe it's a beautiful piece of artwork. Maybe it's athletic prowess where you see a human being, a man or a woman, do something athletically. It's hard for you to conceive how they can do it. And it's beautiful and powerful in its own right. All those things could lead you to this place where you're just, your jaw drops. And I would, I would venture to say you probably have no problem in that moment being awed by that giving praise of a kind to, man, that was amazing, and even being an evangelist for it to other people. Did you see that game last night? Did you hear that piece of music? Man, have you ever been to the summit of Haystack Mountain up in the air? We're an evangelist for those things. They bring us joy. We want to share that with others. So how much more then would that be true, and is that okay for the King of Glory, in whom all of those things find their source? And here's the connect point to why is it okay that God does all that he does for his glory. And that is that your and my greatest joy comes to the degree at which we apprehend the reality of God's glory. The more we witness and behold and worship God for the glorious God he is, the greater joy you will have. And that is why it is okay that God does everything for his glory glory because it is also for your greatest joy. So it's an easy expression for us to gloss past when we're reading Scripture, but it's everywhere when you're looking for it that the end of God's purposes is for His glory. But that's not at our expense. It's actually for our best. And so this is the benediction, or at least at a passing glance, the benediction that the author of Hebrews leaves these Christians in Rome with, and then he gives them a final instruction in verse 22. And here's what he says. There's there's more to this instruction than I think first meets the eye, so much so that I'm going to kind of camp here for a few more minutes than the other two points that will follow. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. 
Now, there are some alternate translations I want to share with you, just two here. One's a translation, one's more of a paraphrase. The, the NIV, the New International Version, puts it this way. I'm just trying to draw out the meaning for you here. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. The message, which is a paraphrase um, of the Bible by Eugene Peterson, he puts it this way. Friends, please take what I have written most seriously. I've kept this as brief as possible. I haven't piled on a lot of extras. That's really trying to extract the intention and meaning of the author here. I, I wonder what your response to that is. The first response might be, that, this is brief? <laughs> and I love the fact that this was predominantly a sermon, because you can read the book of Hebrews in a little bit under an hour, and the author of Hebrews is saying that this is brief, so I'm doing pretty good as long as I keep it under an hour, okay? I'm just saying I'm in good company when I go a little bit long-winded. But here's the implication. The implication is he's been, this author's been selective, very selective in what he's chosen to share to these Christians at this time. Efficient. He shared the most important things these Christians needed to hear at that time. And this is reinforced elsewhere. If you're looking for it and go back and read it, for example, when he just finished talking about this mysterious Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, from which we learn about who Christ is um, and how he's like him, in Hebrews 5.11, the author says, About this, Melchizedek, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you are dull of hearing, so then he has to move on to other things. So there was more that could have been said, should have been said, he felt, about Melchizedek, but he had to move on. There's another place in Hebrews 9, chapter 5, where he gives a description of the Old Testament tabernacle, which was that place of worship that Israel kind of carried around with them in the wilderness and set up and tore down as they moved and worshipped God and get to the very end of that section of description, talking about the, um, the Ark of the Covenant and concludes this way, above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he's having to be selective and efficient with what he actually talks about before he moves on. Here's the point. There's at least two truths we can take away from this. Number one, just generally, take seriously the exhortations of Scripture. The strong urgings, the, the warnings, the instructions, the commandments. Take seriously the Word of God. But secondly, in particular, the truths that God is currently laying before you. And that's where this can start to get more practical for us this morning. Because there's, there's both a strong urging here to heed God's word in general, but there's also a permission to triage the truth you focus on and put into practice. And I like that word. I'll unpack it for you in a minute if that doesn't make sense. But there's a principle for Christian growth. We would call that discipleship that we don't often talk about. And that is that you can't obey everything in the Bible all at once. Now, before you think I'm being a heretic and saying that, let me clarify what I don't mean by that. I don't mean disobedience is okay. What I am saying is that you and I are most accountable to that which God has been showing us in his sovereign wisdom. So focus on applying that, those things. And God, being wise and knowing you and what you need, will work out the rest with you in due time. I think sometimes as Christians it's easy to feel like just tapping out because we are overwhelmed by the amount of things we sense we are called to, the amount of things we are not doing that we feel like we should be doing. And let me say that in one sense we are accountable for it all. Everything in God's Word, the whole law, 
which is why we fall so short and need a Savior. But because God has extended grace to us, undeserved grace, through Christ, who fulfilled the law perfectly for us, we can lay aside that anxiety of all the things we're not doing well, all the things we don't even know that we're not doing well, and focus on obedience to the thing God is calling us to right in front of us. Let me try to illustrate that with a couple of different illustrations. One would be just unpacking that word triage. I don't know what its origin is, but where it was popularized was in the context of uh, warfare um, uh, throughout history and um, in that context, when they would set up like a medical uh, tent for wounded soldiers, they would prioritize who they gave care to based upon the urgency of the, of the situation. So if somebody has a severed artery and like they're bleeding out, that person is going to get care and attention before the person who has a piece of shrapnel in them. Now, if that shrapnel is not dealt with in the long haul, that could also be terminal, but triage is a matter of prioritizing the most important urgent care that is needed, at least in that military context. So we translate that idea to, to Hebrews here, chapter 13 today, and to our own lives. The idea is you have permission to triage the truth that's most urgent to your discipleship. Or here's a different analogy for you. Um, some of you have had the joy of setting up IKEA furniture before, assembling IKEA furniture. Um, <laughs> get some chuckles. People tend to have either a love or a hate relationship with IKEA furniture. I have a lot of experience with IKEA furniture because it looks halfway decent, but it's pretty cheap. So I think in my 18 years, close to 18 years at Terra from Troy till now, probably made like a dozen trips to Ikea just to bring back furniture for our offices and church space. It's affordable, looks halfway decent, right? It's kind of timeless, and so you can get away with keeping it in your space for a long time without it looking like it's aging. Um, but here's the thing, like, you have to set it up. That's why you save a lot of the money. And the instructions that come with it, they're in the universal language of pictures. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to figure out what they're communicating you should do, so you, you, you just try to figure it out yourself. Or for me, I've done it so much that I think, oh, I know what the next step is, and I'll rush ahead. And more than once, it's happened to me, where all of a sudden at the end I have this piece that hasn't made it into the furniture yet, and I'm realizing the only way to get it in is by un, like disassembling the whole thing and basically going back to square one and starting over. What's the point? The point is that there is wisdom, God's wisdom, in the particular truths that he has brought before you right now. There is a whole Bible full of instruction he's given you. But the things that are most pressing that he's brought before you right now in your life are there for a reason. So heed and pay attention to those things. It tells us something about the nature of God, which is that he's purposeful in all the circumstances of our lives. What you are reading, what you are hearing, not just here on a Sunday morning, but elsewhere, what you are experiencing in life, you believe that God is in that because he is. The longer I follow Jesus, the more examples of this I have. Seemingly random passages of scripture that I turn to, or sermons I listen to, or conversations I have, or circumstances I find myself in, my eyes are becoming more and more open as I get older. How God is at work through these things. And then in hindsight, you can start to see Sometimes there's these repeated themes. Those aren't by accident, most likely. God is trying to show you something. Here's the point, if I'm to sum it up concisely. 
you and I are most accountable for what God has clearly been showing you. I remember a few years ago, it's probably five years ago, I just found myself, I was journaling and trying this thing called listening prayer, and I was feeling so deeply anxious about all the things I was aware of that I was not doing, and I just felt like a failure in, which is just like such a strong means the enemy uses to distract us from worship and distract us from the mission God's called to. And I just tried to quiet my soul and listen to God, and what I believed he said to me is, Daniel, you need to just focus on obedience to that which I've made clear. The rest I will make clear to you in due time. There was so much freedom in that for me. And this isn't just a random principle I'm pulling out that's unique to this passage. Uh, I'm starting to see it everywhere. For example, in a few months we'll be in the book of Philippians, one of Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament. And in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, this principle is also in view. Paul's just finished saying that he knows he's not perfect, right? So there's a humility there. But he doesn't dwell on that. He focuses on the prize. He focuses on Christ and worshiping him. And then he goes on to say this. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So if you lose that sense of humility and forget some of those things that God still wants to refine in you or sanctify in you, he'll remind you of those things. If your eyes have gotten on Christ and onto other things, you can trust God will remind you of those things. And then he finishes in verse 16 saying this, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You are responsible for what God has already clearly showed to you. That's the most important thing to continue to hold to. God will make clear the rest in due time. My point again is you and I are only aware of what we are aware of, both your faults and what God has called you to put into practice. Focus on those things, and as you do, the Holy Spirit will make clear where else you need to grow and when. I will say this, all of that, that whole principle, only works and it falls apart if you're not putting yourself in a position to actually listen for the Lord in your life, for his voice in your life. The author has warned many times, such as in Hebrews 3.15, he says, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as the rebellion. We can not have ears that are open to what God is saying to us. So you're safe to live in this principle and the freedom of this principle of triaging the truth that you need to focus on so long as you're positioning yourself to continue hearing from God. That was actually a... I didn't even make that connection until now. That was the second part of what, in that time of listening prayer, I remember sensing from the Lord was that but you do need to keep an open ear to me. You're not off the hook if all of a sudden you start going your own way and deciding what you think is important and then say, well, God, you never showed me what it is that you want me to be focusing on and now I'm living in some sinful way. So it's important that we're positioning ourselves to be able to hear from God. That is why it's so important, and you know that, that's why you're here, to continue to gather for worship, to hear the teaching of God's Word. That's why it's so important for you to be in the Bible yourself, even if that's five minutes in the morning, if that's where you need to start with a psalm for the day, to fix your heart and your mind upon things that are true, that God has real to us in his word. That's why it's so important that you're praying and not just saying to God the things you hope that he will do for you. That's a part of prayer. He wants to hear what desires on your heart. But being silent and listening for what he might want to say in return to you. 
That's why it's so important that we are in community and vulnerable in community so that we can share what's really going on in our lives with other people who have the Holy Spirit of God and He can speak through them back into our lives. And more, we have to be positioning ourselves to hear from God if we're going to live in the freedom of triaging all the possible truths that He wants us to put into practice. How do we do that? How do we triage truth? Well, a couple things. We look for recurring themes in Scripture. What is it that has stood out over and over again for you as of late? The things that God has kind of divinely highlighted by His Holy Spirit as you've been reading the Word or listening to other people who are speaking truth into your life. Maybe, by the way, it's one of the recurring themes that we've encountered in the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to mention a few because I felt like these were important, at least to me and um, and to some of you. There's, of course, the, the main theme that I think any of you would guess if you've been here for any of our Hebrews series, and that is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Right? You have these Jewish Christians in Rome who are under pressure to go back to their previous brand of Judaism by their Jewish family and friend members who had not become Christians. And so the author spends this whole sermon trying to deter them from leaving the faith and going back to this comfortable place of their of, of of their previous relationship with God without Christ by saying things like, Jesus is better than the angels that your brethren places such a high priority on. He's better than Moses, who's so revered amongst the Jews. He's better than Melchizedek. He's a better high priest than those in the Old Covenant. He's a better sacrifice. In fact, he is a better covenant in, in and of himself. He ushered in the New Covenant and so on and so forth. We talked about like 20 or 25 ways in which the author of Hebrews talks about how much better Jesus is. And so maybe one of the ways throughout this series in Hebrews that you have been challenged personally, a recurring theme, is that God has been challenging you to trust Jesus is truly better than something else in your life right now that's competing with your love for Him. Or maybe it's the theme of endurance in the face of trials, and some of you are going through some really hard things, and it feels like they are unending. And we've encountered this theme over and over again, this underlying conviction, it seems, of the author and why he was writing. And, and it was this, that endurance in those trials, endurance in the Christian life, will be in direct proportion to the clarity with which you see Jesus and what he has done for you in the gospel. That's it. If you take your sight, your, your eyes off of him, it's going to make endurance, if not difficult, if not impossible, very, very difficult for you. Maybe it's the sobering warnings. There were three or four pretty serious warnings we encountered that were uncomfortable when we came across them in Hebrews. But they're uncomfortable for a reason, because God loves us and he doesn't want us to go astray. Um, there was warnings like beware of, beware of the temptation to shrink back in fear, in the face of opposition in your life to your faith. Uh, there were warnings to beware of the temptation to become complacent and to coast along as an immature believer. Maybe it was one of those warnings that stood out to you. Maybe it's the theme of God's discipline in your life through trials, not as an evidence of His punishment of you, as we read about in Hebrews 12. Instead, it's God uses his discipline as an affirmation of you being a legitimate child of God whom he loves and is refining so that, as it said in chapter 12, you will experience the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Or maybe it's a call to remember who Jesus is on your behalf. Your high priest, 
your perfect sacrifice, your intercessor before God, so that you can draw near to the throne of grace and find help in your time of need. Maybe that theme has opened your eyes to see how the Lord sees you in a different way, and you need to embrace that and really press into that. That's just a sampling. It could be something else. It could be something outside of Hebrews that's been a recurring theme that the Lord has impressed upon you. And then just briefly, the second way we discern what recurring themes do we need to triage, truths do we need to triage in our life is, firstly, what are those recurring themes in Scripture, but what are those things that are then reinforced in relationship? See, the author of Hebrews didn't say what he said here to these Christians randomly. He said it based upon a personal relationship with these people. So he had a sense from doing life with them what they needed to hear. We read in in chapter 13 last week, verses 18 and 19, he says, Pray for me that I may be restored to you all the sooner. So clearly that presupposes there was a relationship, a meaningful relationship this person had with these Christians. He knew them. So there's on a human level a discernment that he had. Here's what these guys need to hear. But then secondly, there's also a discernment from the Holy Spirit. There's insight beyond his own as to what truth God wants to bring before those Christians. Just prior to the closing thoughts we're looking at today, the author speaks of their leaders keeping watch over their souls. So the local leaders keeping watch over the souls of these people in chapter 13, verse 17. Those leaders, those pastors and other leaders, they were not doing that alone through solely human wisdom. They were doing that as they were being led by Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, as we just read today. Or in other words, as they were being led by the Holy Spirit. That's true of all believers, by the way. If you are in Christ today, if you have a relationship with him, he saved you and he's your Lord. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Jesus' presence in you. And so God may very well be reinforcing the truths that you need to hear and obey through others who are speaking into your life. And by the way, they may be unwitting participants in that. There's often the way that that even works. So here's the point. Give credence to the value of what others observe and speak into your life. And especially those who are willing to speak hard truth but also have a track record of faithfulness and love. Those are people whose words you can trust. Okay, practically. And this is where you guys are going to need to participate for a moment. Although I trust you already have. Uh, just in your listening. But what truths do you need to give priority in your life right now? What recurring themes has God been bringing before you that he and maybe others have been strongly urging you to act upon? Maybe they're warnings. Maybe they're gospel gospel truths. You need to let encourage you. You need to stop seeing yourself as the exception to the rule of, of God's promises to his people. Maybe it's lies that you're tempted to believe, but you need to dismiss and replace with the truth. Could be from the book of Hebrews over this past year, but for our purposes, even more broadly, it could be something else through your own personal reading and journey that God has made repeatedly clear to you. So what are the exhortations you've received through the Word and others that you need to give your full attention? I'm going to give you a minute to just think on that. And some of you already know what it is. You don't need that moment to think about it. For others of you, take the space of the next minute. Just pause, reflect, and even allow God the opportunity to maybe surface something in your mind that has been a theme that he really just wants you to press into. Take a minute to do that, okay?
Okay. I'm not sure what came to mind for you, but let me encourage you to do two things. Even if it's fuzzy, it doesn't seem super clear. Take the risk by faith of whatever it might have been, or maybe it was real clear. Write it down, first off. You know by journaling things, writing things down, that's a way of memorializing what God is doing in your life so you don't forget. (laughs) It's a really helpful thing to do. It's kind of why we have the Bible. Um, Something that's written down so we don't forget who God is and what he's doing. And that way you can then revisit it a week from now, a month from now, six months from now, and you can even test. Does this thing still seem to be relevant and really important? Have there continued to be ways in which God's reinforced that as something I need to work on, press into, believe, moving ahead? And then secondly, pick one person in your mind, at least one person right now, um, who you can share this with, because when we share the things that are going on in our life with other people, it makes it real on a different level. It solidifies it, and then there's built-in accountability. So write it down. Revisit it in the days ahead and share with one other person and see how God works through that to work in you what he wants to for his good pleasure. Okay? So how did we get there? Because verse 22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear witness or bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So he's saying, take seriously the word of God and in particular the recurring themes of truth that God has brought before you. All right, much more briefly, there's a greeting here in verses 23 and 24 and then a gospel reminder. He says in verse 23, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and the saints, those who come from Italy. Send you greetings. There's some debate over whether the translation here should be those who come from Italy or those from Italy. The implications are slightly different. Either these are members of this church who are away from home, on pilgrimage, or maybe they got chased out of Rome because of persecution, or they're members of other churches and other locations in Italy. But either way, this is a common feature of the New Testament letters for a reason. These greetings and updates from members of other churches outside of the one being written to served to encourage the local church. So I want to talk about two important takeaways for us to consider, a strategic implication and a theological implication from these greetings. The, the strategic implication is this. This sermon was most likely being circulated amongst house churches in Rome. Why do we know that? Because he says, greet all your leaders and all the saints, which would be a really weird thing to write if they were already all present in that first reading. So it seems to imply this recognition by the author that they would not have been all together at one time while this is being read aloud. And so it would have been circulated amongst these other house churches that were in Rome at the time. So a couple of reasons for this. One might have been just practical. Venue size locations were limited, uh, that there weren't great places to gather like all those who were Christians in Rome together. It could have also been just discretion as to how large their gatherings they wanted them to be um, because of not wanting to bring unwanted attention. Um, But it also most likely was purposeful. So the lion's share of community and discipleship and mission happens most effectively um, in smaller groups of people who are consistently doing life together, right? I mean, case in point, Jesus chose 12 inner circle disciples, right? Um, Not all 72, not all 500 at the resurrection. It was was 12. Um, So large gatherings like this one here this morning have their place 
And they may even happen on occasion in Rome, but it was these smaller venues where the people would have actually worked out these exhortations in the context of their community. And that just informs one of our convictions at Terra. Sundays are important uh, to hear the word of God, to gather together and to get that encouragement and momentum that comes from the whole church being together. But the places that these things are going to be worked out, where community is going to be built, we're going to grow on our discipleship journey, and we're most effectively on mission together are in smaller groups than what we can accomplish here on a Sunday morning. That's why we have tribes at Terranova Church. Um, and so that's just to talk about the strategic implication of why this letter was sent to house churches, probably for practical and purposeful reasons. But then there's that theological implication too, and that is that when you include a greeting in a letter like this, um, and there's other ways in which we bring reminders of the broader body of Christ I'll talk about in a moment, it just serves to encourage us that we're not alone. You're not alone in your struggling and your suffering. Sometimes the most effective lie of the enemy is just that. You're alone. Nobody struggles to believe like you do. No one believes what you do. Nobody suffers with the same things that you do. Nobody experiences the the same temptations that you do. We need the reminder we're not alone in that. And in fact, by some people's count, there's two billion Christians um, globally in this world. Two billion. I can't even wrap my head around that number. And while Christianity may, relatively speaking, be languishing in the West, did you know that it is flourishing in the global South? There are probably more Christians today than there ever has been, regardless of what it feels like in our own cultural context. There's strength and encouragement that comes from knowing you are not alone. This is why I love when we do things like gather our three locations for our men's Imago retreat. And it isn't just the guy from Saratoga. There's encouragement that comes from that, a reminder that we're not alone. That's why we take time to pray for their local churches, like we did at the start of the service today, that we're in partnership with. That's why we're happy to encourage our guys to be a part of something like the fold, which some of you guys got the email earlier this week. It's this quarterly <clears throat> gathering of men from other like-minded churches in the Saratoga area for mutual encouragement. The next one will be right here at SBC on February 9th. We need those reminders. We're not alone. The body of Christ is vast. God is working through it all, and the temptations and sufferings and struggles and triumphs that we're experiencing are not unique to us. And then finally, a gospel reminder The author concludes the letter. He says, Grace be with all of you in verse 25. Um, This is not just a passing thought or pleasantry at the end of a letter. Like you might sign a letter yours truly or sincerely or, you know, pass somebody by on the street and say, Hey, how's it going? It's not that. This is purposeful. Grace is the defining hallmark of the gospel rooted in the person of Jesus Christ that we've been looking at throughout all of Hebrews. Grace, shortly and succinctly, is God giving us something that we don't deserve. While God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we saw that last week, if there is something that is different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in Christ, or between Christianity and all the other major world religions for that matter, it is the grace of God on display and his son, Jesus Christ. Every other world religion, in some form or another, will preach, you get what you deserve. Jesus came as our high priest, 
and our perfect sacrifices for sins so that we don't get what we deserve. Or as a friend once put it, law owes you one, grace never does. That's the defining distinction of Christianity and of the new covenant in Christ. And it's this grace that gives us the confidence that God loves us, that he wants us, and that he invites us to draw near to him with full confidence. And so let's end this series on this passage of Scripture in Hebrews, which I believe is rightly the most beloved, probably in Hebrews, if not the New Testament, one of the most beloved. And it comes from Hebrews 14, or excuse me, Hebrews 4. You didn't know we were continuing the series next week. Only 13 chapters. Verses 14 to 16. And this is something that you can receive, even with a posture of open hands. You are in Christ here this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Would you join me in prayer? God of grace and mercy, thank you for how that is on display in your Son, Jesus Christ. Perhaps there's no greater truth for any of us to focus on moving forward this morning than that. But I do pray, Lord, that you would help to become clear to each person here that which it is that you are trying to show them about yourself, about themselves, and about where you're calling them to obedience, and give them strength to walk in that. Lord, we thank you for the reminder, too, that Hebrews has been that truly Jesus is better than all the alternatives that constantly compete for our attention and our love. And we just plead with you, would you make that an increasing reality in our own hearts? That we would love Jesus more as we see more and more of your glory on display in him and in this world. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.